The title of today's sermon is His Power Over Darkness and Dumbness, and it's taken from Matthew 9, verses 27 through 38. Glad you joined us this morning. I'm going to be preaching from the book of Matthew, and uh, I'd like to begin, set the tone for our time together by praying. Would you pray with me? Father God, we're so grateful that you provide all that we need, that you are our joy, our happiness, our all. Help us, Lord, to leave this place better equipped to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us, Father, to be more than victims, but to be conquerors in Christ. Teach us now, we would pray, through the Holy Spirit's ministry. In Christ's name, amen. Can I ask you a serious question? What is it that you want from Jesus? What can he do for you? Do you need financial help? Are you looking for success in life? Are you wanting to tap into the wisdom of God? Are you wanting Jesus to solve some kind of problem in your family life? Lord, fix my wife, please. Lord, fix my kids. Maybe you're sick this morning and you'd like the Lord to heal your body or the body of a loved one. Maybe you're asking him to give you another opportunity after some great failure in your life. Truth is, we're all looking for something from Jesus. And most of us believe he is the only one that is able to provide it. So, what is it? that you want from the Lord this morning? Are you looking for his forgiveness? Some heinous sin that you committed that you think can never make you clean again? Some of us desperately seek the presence of Christ in our lives so that we can have peace in this world. Others look to him for victory over self and release from guilt. Oftentimes, we just want him to show us his will for our lives. Do you remember the scene from It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey is out of options? And so what's the last thing he could do, the last place he could go, the last thing he... He turns to prayer. Do you remember the scene? Lights, camera. Dear Father in heaven... I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way, oh God. Are you all right, George? Want somebody to take you home, huh? Why are you dream so much, my friend? Please go home, Mr. Bailey. This is Christmas Eve. Bailey? Which Bailey? This Mr. George Bailey. The next time you talk to my wife like that, you'll get worse. She cried for an hour. It isn't enough she slaves teaching you stupid kids how to read and write, and you have to ball her out, eh? Get out of here, Mr. Willis. Now, oh, wait a minute. I want to pay for my drink. Never mind the money. You get out of here, quick. George? Who's that? 
He gone. No worry. His name is Welsh. He don't come into my place no more. Oh, Welsh. That's what he get for praying. The last time he come in here, you hear that, Nick? That's what I get for praying. We all want something from Jesus, don't we? We all want comfort, assurance that we think only Jesus can give us. But how often is it that we really turn to prayer? Usually as a last-ditch effort, right? That is, we turn to prayer when we're desperate and out of options, as we saw last week. So can I ask you again one more time, what is it that you want from Jesus this morning? We all want something, but we rarely ask him for it. And we rarely ask him for what he wants from us. As you know, the last several months we've been studying the book of Matthew, concentrating on his miracles as found in chapters 8 and 9. Matthew catalogs these miracles that Jesus did in order to prove that he is the Messiah, that he, that he has the requisite power and authority to be who he said he was. Jesus was the long-awaited king likened unto King David. Matthew now concludes that series of ten miracles by focusing in on a blind, two blind men and a mute and demon-possessed man. This, I think, is rather descriptive of Israel's spiritual condition. Well, with that in mind, that is our introduction. Would you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 9? Verse 27 is where we'll pick up in our study. The text can be found on page 966 in the Pew Bibles that are in front of you. You'll recall that Jesus was living in Capernaum. It was the center place of his ministry, and he had been eating dinner at Matthew's house when along came some ruffians, some tax collectors, some publicans and sinners, and he ate with them. It was while he was eating that he was interrupted by a question from the disciples of John who asked him about fasting, why he and his disciples did not fast when they did. Well, at that moment in time, the interruption took place in which Jairus begged Jesus to come to his home and to help his dying daughter. As Jesus would He complied, he got up from the table, and he began to make his way to Jairus' house, whose daughter had now died, and he's interrupted again, this time by a woman with a hemorrhage. Jesus heals the woman there, and then he goes on to the young girl's home with Jairus, and he raises her from the dead. Jesus, once again, is on his way back to Matthew's house when he has another opportunity to present his credentials as the king, the Jewish Messiah. He has shown through these ten miracles his power over life and death and all the other things that are powerful in the life of the believer today. So we pick up in verse 27 with the story of the two blind men who had a great need. We read, as Matthew tells us, that Jesus went from there, that would be Jairus' house, with the two blind men following him and crying out, Have mercy on us, Son of God! Have mercy on us, Son of David! So, he's making his way back to Matthew's house, I assume, to finish the dinner and the conversation that he had been interrupted by Jairus at, and he is called upon once again to meet some people's needs. 
He's interrupted here by two blind men. And they want something from Jesus. They know what it is that they want. If I was to ask you again this morning, what is it that you want from Jesus? Could you put your desires as articulate as these men do? Hopefully this text will help us see what our own great need is. We know, or we think we know, what these two men wanted from Jesus, don't we? When we look at the text, most people come to the conclusion that what they want is their sight restored. Am I not right? Well, then you probably haven't looked at the text close enough. If you read their request, what they say to Jesus is, Have mercy on us. You see, that's the great need that all of us have. We need the mercy of God. The definition of mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone with whom you are in one's power to punish or harm. You can see the lexical definition of the word behind me on the screen. The Greek word eleo carries the idea of not just feeling of compassion, but it means to actually be in the position to help the person who is hurting. Mercy is compassion shown for the one that is miserable. They are the object, if you will, of your help. Oftentimes, we want to blame people for the conditions, the terrible conditions that they find themselves in. They're sinners, and therefore they are at fault for their own conditions, and our compassion is nowhere to be found. This might be true. If if your telephone is speaking to us, you might need the compassion and the mercy of Pastor Scott. Um, But in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11, we read this. The Lord said, who has made man's mouth? This is Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Hmm. And then in 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 18, It says much the same thing. Elisha prayed to the Lord and he said, Strike these people with blindness, I pray. What kind of a prayer is that? So God struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And then Elisha said, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. And when they had gone into Samaria... Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Why were these two men blind? Was it an accident? Was it because of their personal sin or their family sin? Or or was it for the purposes of God? Now, I don't know the answer to that question because the text doesn't tell us. Not the sex, the text. The text doesn't tell us. But those are the possibilities, are they not? Why are you in the circumstances that you are in today? Was it your own making? Was it because circumstances out of your control? Or was it for the purposes of God? I don't know. But I know that these men 
recognize their situation, and they recognize who Jesus is, and he's the only one that is capable to, capable to extend them the mercy that they need. I believe that Matthew is moving his readers to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, and that is that he is more than a healer, that he is more than a prophet of God, but that he is really the Messiah King. Matthew uses two blind men to help those around him to see. Those who are spiritually blind to see who Jesus really is. One thing is for sure, they have no problem answering the question, what is it that you want from Jesus? They knew what they wanted from him because they knew who he was. He was the son of David. He was the descendant of the messianic line. We know that because they cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. They make their appeal directly to him because of who he was. They recognized him as the Son of David. And what do they ask for? Have mercy on us. That stems from their belief in him as not just a healer, not just as an Old Testament prophet, but as the son of David, the Messiah. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak with certainty for myself. I have never had a great need like these men I have never been blind. But on the other hand, I do recognize with certainty that I too have walked in darkness. I was lost in sin. It was a greater need for me than any other need that I have to know the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. To experience Him and His mercy in my personal life. The irony about this verse is that it was two blind men who were the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. As they cry out, those who were listening had to grapple with their statement. Is this really the son of David? The messianic hope for Israel? The long-awaited Messiah? the one who has a right to reign and rule over Israel, these men living in darkness could see that Jesus had the power to heal their blindness. He could restore their sight. No one else could. Isaiah speaks of this power of the Messiah in chapter 61 and verse 1 when he says this, The coming Messiah, under the power of the Spirit of God, because the Lord has anointed him to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent him to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives and the freedom to prisoners, and on that day the deaf will hear Words of a book and out of their gloom and the darkness of the eyes of the blind will see. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Praise the Lord. These two blind men recognize Jesus for who he is. He is the King, the Son of God, the Messiah come to offer himself to Israel to be their King. But first of all, they recognize their greatest need in life. And it's not to have their eyes restored. It's to experience the mercy of God. 
That word is so important that Matthew will repeat it four times when coupled with a request made of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we move through the text, we see that the entourage of Jesus, which the movie fails to present accurately, I'm sorry, it's just an introduction to the topic of the day, so don't take the movie literal, but we know from the previous text that the inner circle, James, John, and Peter, were with Jesus when he healed Jairus' daughter, right? And the parents were there. And upon finishing his task of, of his power over death, Jesus moves back to the house of Matthew to conclude the dinner that he had begun so many hours before. And we see now the response of Jesus to these blind men that he meets along the way. When they entered into the house of Matthew, the two blind men came up to him. Now, we're not told why they're blind. We're not told how they got into the house. We're not told that someone led them into the home, nor are we told that they were groping the walls as they made their way in. All we know is that they came in and they cried out to Jesus. And what was Jesus' response? He spoke directly to the two blind men, asking them, Do you believe? Look at your text. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I have the power of the Messiah to heal your blindness? Everyone knew Isaiah 61. Jews were raised on it. It was a staple of their life. Do you believe I am the one who Isaiah said would be coming? Now others in our culture really don't believe. They give a nod to Jesus. Some claim to be spiritual and that Jesus is in their pantheon of spiritual leaders. So the question of these men is quite appropriate for our day. Do you really believe that Jesus has the power as the Messiah to heal the blind, to raise the dead, to give hearing back, to heal illnesses? Do you believe This is asking more than, do you believe in me, that I can heal you? Do you believe that I am the son of David? Do you see me as the Messiah King, who is able to do this? They unhesitatingly responsored with this answer. Yes, Lord. No equivocation. A simple yes. They believed that he was God in the flesh. Now, today men have a statement. They say, seeing is believing. But Jesus said to these men, believing is seeing. If you really believe, then you will see. The writer of Hebrews noted, by faith we understand. Jesus said to Martha, I do not say to you that if you will believe, would you see? I have written to you who believe that you may know, says John in the first epistle. Our Lord doesn't take kindly to those who demand that he perform miracles or give signs to engender belief. Jesus desires that we see who he is because of who he said he was. 
Now in verse 29, we read that the Lord touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And they were healed. That's an interesting statement. What does it mean, according to their faith? Is this a statement of qualification or quality or quantity? Did their faith have to be big faith? Or was little faith enough? What if their faith was simply present? I personally don't believe Jesus healed them in proportion to their faith, but rather he healed them in response to their faith. That's what it means, I believe, according to their faith. It was a response to their faith. The object of their faith, whether it was big or little, was the same. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was responding to the light that they had that shone brightly in their darkness. Only Jesus, the Messiah, had the power to overcome the darkness that they experienced in their spiritual lives and in their physical lives. These blind men affirmed that truth when they called him the son of David. Their belief in him as the son of David brought about their healing. Now let me point out to that in some passages, and like those that I read in Isaiah, are prophetic. That they say that the coming Messiah will restore sight to the blind. So this is not Jesus again necessarily healing these men because he has compassion on them, though that's true. It's not out of pity that he heals on them. It's, order for him, it's an or, done in order for him to show his credentials to the wider audience of all of Israel. His credentials as the Messiah King. It's not only stated in Isaiah as being so, but the psalmist agrees, telling Israel in chapter 146 and verse 8 that the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Messiah Christ will open the eyes of the blind. And Matthew underscores this and he affirms this as the evidence to look for when you see a person claiming to be the Messiah, as Jesus did. And I've recited this verse for you before, but let me remind you of it once again. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 5, we read that the Messiah will do these things. The the blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So Jesus asked them, do you have faith in me? Do you believe? Now, I, I think Jesus knew that they did. He wasn't asking them to affirm it for himself, but to affirm it for them and for the audience that watched. Jesus knew they believed, and the healing was a result of their faith. It was an object lesson, if you will, for the nation of Israel. I find it quite interesting and noteworthy that the faith that is demonstrated in these ten miracles we find in the book of Matthew are growing throughout the two chapters. In chapter 8, we had the example of a Gentile, a Roman centurion, a pagan, who demonstrates great faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's followed by his own disciples, who, while they're out on on the Galilee, a great storm arises, and they demonstrate little faith. Then four men carry a 
paralyzed man up the stairs and down, lower him down through the roof to Jesus by faith. Last week we looked at a woman with an issue of blood who by faith touched Jesus' garment to heal her. Finally, Jairus' only option for his dead, deceased daughter was the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he believed by faith could raise her. Now we have the testimony of two blind men whose faith in the son of David is rewarded. Jesus shows that he has the power to not only heal human life, but to give life from the dead. However, his power is limited to those who believe. Those who demonstrate faith in him, whether it be big or little. They must have faith in his person. And in verse 30, we see that it is only by the touch of Jesus that this healing takes place. And after he has touched her, their eyes were open, says the text. Their eyes were open. Once they were blind, but now they could see. The darkness was lifted and everything was visible to them once more. Could you imagine their experience as the light flooded into their eyes? How blinding it must have been if you've ever come out of a dark place, a cave or a darkened basement, and then all of a sudden to a bright light. Can you imagine what they experienced? But it was much, much more than that for in their spiritual lives. They, they came alive as well. Of course, this is all being juxtaposed by Matthew. He's juxtaposing these two blind men, spiritually alive now because of their faith in Christ, with those who are called the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, who are truly blind. They are blind to the person of Christ. They are blind to the truth that Jesus espouses. Jesus wasn't all right with them, as the song goes. These blind men were able to see Jesus before he ever touched their eyes. They understood it. They got it. They knew who he was. And they were so excited that they were going to go tell everybody about it. And then, unexpectedly, out of nowhere, what happens? Jesus says sternly to them. He warns them, see that no one knows about this. And we say, huh? What? Wouldn't you have thought that the Lord would have wanted them to go out and invite all of their friends, their families, and their neighbors to the synagogue next Saturday to come and hear Jesus preach? See the guy that made me see again. Hey, everybody, this is my new pastor. He is awesome, awesome. He not only tells off all of the politicians and all of the religious leaders, leaders but he makes me well again. And Jesus tells them not to go tell anybody. Do not go spread this around. His instructions are clear. The instruction is to tell no one. I guess Jesus won't be writing any books, hosting any seminars on how to grow your synagogue. I doubt he will release any DVD packages of his messages on power evangelism or Jewish explosion. Can you just see one of those? The smiling Jesus telling all the sheeple how God intended the kids of the kingdom to become rich. You're only poor because you have a lack of faith. But we know that's not true. We know that Christ died to overcome sin, not our poverty problem. 
He didn't come to atone for our poverty and to make us rich. Jesus came to save our souls. He didn't say, send in your money, your seed money, and I'll make you well again, did he? The Father will bless you with cash because you believed in me. No, it was never Jesus' purpose to attain the attention of the world by his miracles. It was simply to identify himself as the person of the Messiah. That's why he commands this man to keep quiet. And yet, what did he do? He went out and told everybody. Why? Why would Jesus tell him to keep it on the down low and yet he wouldn't do that? Jesus wanted to prevent, I believe, a premature movement to install him as the king. He didn't want the Roman government becoming anxious about his ministry and putting a stop to it before the appointed time. So he warns these blind men, now made whole, restoring their sight, to not go off half-cocked and making him the center of attention for the people who needed to be healed. Jesus's purpose in doing the miraculous was simply to authenticate himself as the Messiah King, not to promote himself as a physical healer. The purpose of Jesus then is to proclaim to Israel who he is. I am the Messiah, the one who has come to reign over you. And if you will receive me as your king, I will rule for a thousand years. And we read in verse 31, they went out and they spread the news about him. Where? Throughout the whole land. It's spread everywhere. You know gossip, right? Do you think they actually walked around the whole land of Israel? I don't. Don't you hate it when people won't listen to what you say? You say something very clear. I have this experience all the time. I'll say something very clearly in my sermon, and then someone will stop me at the door and say something that I said something completely different. Jesus says to them, don't go out and tell anybody. What do they do? They do the complete opposite. They do what they want to do. They apparently couldn't hear his words because they were so overwhelmed with their experience and the gratitude that they felt in their heart. They became the first ones to start the harvest. They start spreading the good news. The response of those who were healed was to go out and tell anyone who would listen to them. I only wish today that people in the church would be the same way. I'm not in the healing business. Jesus was. I am in the spiritual healing business, and so was Jesus. But Jesus is the only one that can heal your spiritual hurts. He's the only one that can extend mercy to you. He came to give us hope, to spiritually heal us and to give us hope. If I was to ask you today, what is your hope? What is your hope today as a believer? What would it be? That I have a good life? That I go to the afterlife and sit on a cloud and play a violin and sing hymns all day? Is that your hope? My hope is that the Lord Jesus Christ will descend into the heavens with a shout and the trumpet will blow and the sound of the archangel will be heard and I will be translated to be in his presence. That's my hope. 
That's my hope. The rapture's my hope. I don't understand these people who believe in a post-tribulational rapture. What are they, nuts? Let me, what? Let me cut that out of my sermon. I'm sorry. What? I don't understand. What's their hope? Oh, I'm hoping after seven years of tribulation that it'll finally get to heaven. Is that their hope? I've had enough tribulation in this life for a lifetime. Haven't you? My hope is to be with Jesus. And if I can't make it to the rapture, then when I die, my soul will go to be with him. That is my hope. I'm tired of hearing about all these hopeless Christians, you know, that have their confused end times. Why don't they just read the Bible? There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, says Paul. Tribulation sounds like condemnation to me. Doesn't it sound like that to you? Sorry, none of that was in my text. Now let me find my place. The only hope that we have is that Jesus will heal us spiritually and fit us for his presence. That's what I'm looking for, forward to. Jesus is a spiritual healer. He's healed me of sin and you, of sin, death, and the grave. We don't have to experience sin any longer. We have victory over it. We only sin because we choose to sin. I don't have to be afraid of death any longer. Christ has healed me of that fear. If I die, it's not the end. It's not the grave and that's it. I have a great certainty that I will live in the presence of God, conquering sin, death, and the grave. But the greatest gift of all is the mercy of God. It's because of the mercy, because of Christ's mercy shed abroad in my heart. I trusted him. I believed in him. Do you believe? Yes, Lord. And now my great hope is the rapture of the church. My hope is not in Trump. My hope is not in the certainty that the Republicans will pass Obamacare or some tax cut. My hope is in Jesus Christ and him alone. Now, back at the dinner at Matthew's house, he had been busy preaching and teaching when he is interrupted by these two blind men. And we read in verse 32, as they were going out, another interruption. Boy, he gets interrupted a lot, doesn't he? I don't know about you, but when I'm working, when I'm eating my dinner, I don't like to be interrupted. You know? Jesus was a kind, compassionate, and merciful man. And we read here that as they were going out, a mute, that's the two blind men, a mute demon possessed was brought to him. Jeez, can you imagine the looks on the faces of the disciples? Another interruption. I can't get to the good stuff. The chocolate mousse is here. It's flaming away. Another interruption. They're tired. They probably want to go home and get on with whatever's next on their agenda. But another interruption. This time it's a mute, demon-possessed man with a great need. You can see the need because he's obviously out of control. His arms are swinging wildly and he probably has a hard time walking. He has an inability to speak. The demon had robbed him of everything that makes a person human. Most essentially, the ability to communicate. I find it interesting that there is no record of any 
mute women being brought to Jesus. Up to this point in Matthew, Jesus gives sight to the blind, cures the leopard, raises the dead, but now to top it off, he cures dumbness. I know a lot of people that need this cure. <laughs> he gives life. First of all, there's a progression here in the text. He gives life, then he gives understanding, and lastly, he's going to give a verbal testimony through a man who was once mute. The Lord, of course, cannot ask this man if he believes because he cannot answer. Jesus doesn't even speak to him, but he gives him the free gift of freedom from the demonic possession and the ability to speak once again. We read in verse 33, After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever happened in America before. Oh, Israel uh, before. There's a two-step process going on here to this man being made whole once again. The first one is obviously the demon is cast out. This man had been possessed by this demon for a long time, apparently. Evil had come to rest inside of him and to control him. And the only hope for wellness that he has is the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the mute man is enabled to speak once again. We're not told what his first words are, but wouldn't they have been interesting? I can't even imagine what they might be. We're not told anything about what he does after he is made uh, able to speak again. The purpose for which Jesus heals this demon-possessed mute man is once again to show himself as the Messiah, the King of Israel. He's presenting his credentials to the Jewish people. This was an unprecedented event in the history of Israel. That's what they say, right? Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. They've seen a lot of stuff, a lot of miracles, a lot of interesting events, but they'd never seen anything like this. So you would think not only the crowds would embrace Jesus, but the religious elites would too. Wouldn't you think that? Wow, this guy is awesome we got to find out more about him. But the Pharisees were mad, of course. And we read in verse 34, the Pharisees were saying, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons, by Beelzebub. I love saying that word. And it just flows, Beelzebub. Try it, Beelzebub. Never mind. Instead of being wowed like the folks, the Pharisees weren't even interested in any of Jesus' miracles or the meaning or the purpose of them. He does it by the power of Satan. Wow. Interesting. They couldn't deny the fact that Jesus had made a dumb, demon-possessed man able to speak once again. He, they could not deny that he made the blind to see, so they had to come up with an excuse from an alternate universe. The Russian connection helped him do it. His use of social media helped him to perform these miracles. Oh, I know what it was. It was because of Jewish male resentment of the elites. It wasn't any of these things. Trump is a pawn of Satan. I mean, Jesus. Jesus is a pawn of Satan. Well, that's probably true, the first one. Uh, 
most leaders are pawns of Satan at some point in time, don't, don't you think? But like Jews today, these religious phonies rejected Christ as the Messiah because he didn't meet their expectations. They wanted the man who would ride the white horse and defeat the Romans to come in as the Messiah King. So Jesus didn't do that. Therefore, that translates into he must be in league with the devil. It's kind of ironic if you think about it. (laughs) That one day soon, Israel will indeed embrace a false Christ who has been empowered by the evil one. He's called the Antichrist. Isn't that interesting? Now, when one attributes the work of God, here Jesus is healing people. He's making the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the dead to rise to life once again. When one attributes the actions of God through the Holy Spirit to the evil, one one has committed the unpardonable sin. It's blaspheming the work of the Spirit when you say that what you're seeing is being done by Satan rather than God. This just shows us how evil these men really were. How blind they really were. Here Jesus is showing himself through his person and works who he is and he's rejected by those who claim to be the religious guides to the people of Israel. The, spirit, the Pharisees were really spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind, like those monkeys. In the last three verses, Matthew presents his conclusions about the ministries of, ministry of Jesus in this section. It had previously been stated exactly in the same way back up in uh, an earlier verse in Matthew, Matthew Uh, chapter 4. We read in verse 35 this restatement of Jesus' purpose in his ministry. Jesus was going throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching where? In the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. There's a threefold breakdown here of Jesus' ministry. The three parts of his public ministry to Israel were teaching, preaching, and healing. This same wording, as I said, appears in Matthew 4. So there's a, a book ending here. Jesus is presenting himself to be the fulfillment, as I've said, ad nauseum, as the Messiah. And he does so traveling across all of Israel and every town, village, and hamlet, presenting the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is not speaking to the church. Jesus is not speaking to Gentiles. Jesus is speaking to Jews. He's presenting himself as their Messiah, their king. The kingdom will come if you embrace me and receive me. I don't know how these pastors stand in pulpits and get this so confused. Jesus is not speaking to a church that's still a mystery, that hasn't even started yet. He's speaking to his own people. Jesus shows them to who shows them who he is by performing miracles, by raising the dead. And then he said, based on these experiences, Israel should repent. And you know the word means have a change of mind and worship him as God. Acknowledge him as the Holy One of God so that he can be their king and that he can reign over them.
Jesus presents a bona fide offer to Israel to be their king. And what do they do? They reject him. And they kill him. Let me return to my original question. Is that okay? What is it that you want from Jesus? Obviously, Israel did not want him to be their king. What if Israel had embraced him as king? Well, first of all, we'll never know because that didn't happen. And secondly, because the scriptures are silent as to what would have been the result. But if, upon hearing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and the Jews had changed their mind about Jesus, and they had accepted him, and he became their king, they would have been rewarded. But the kingdom of the gospel, the, king, the gospel of the kingdom, I should say, is not, is not, is not the gospel of grace. However, there are not, there are not two gospels either. There's only one gospel. For us today, there are many facets of the grace of God. There are many facets of the good news. Jesus came to proclaim the good news that he would be their king by the grace of God. He came down from heaven to dwell amongst men, to tabernacle amongst men, to become their king. The king was at hand. The kingdom was ready to come in. But the heart condition of the people must be right to accept him. Instead, they rejected him. They put him on a cross. And you know what? Israel is still as stiff-necked today as they were then. Despite the fact that Jesus validated who he was, that he showed himself who he was, what did they say? You get your power from the evil one. Now in verse Excuse me. In chapter 10, the next chapter we look at, Jesus will now send out his ambassadors to the nation of Israel. The disciples will go out proclaiming the same gospel of the kingdom, and they will get the same results as Jesus got. They will go out and proclaim that he will be their king, and they will be rejected. They will preach, they will teach, and they will even heal as Jesus healed, and yet they will still be rejected. But you need to know this. That is not our commission today. We are not being called to take the gospel of the kingdom to Israel. We are called to take the gospel of grace to the whole world. We preach and teach, but we do not perform miracles. We do not heal. The Holy Spirit through his power, validates the message that we bear, the message of the gospel of grace. As I said, Israel rejected the message of the gospel of the kingdom, but the church embraces the gospel of grace. The Jews required a sign, but the church is told to walk by faith and not by sight. One of my favorite preachers from long ago, maybe some of you have heard of him, he used to be the pastor of the church of the open door in L.A., Dr. McGee. Before he passed to be with the Lord about 20 years ago, he wrote upon this text, and this is what he said. He wrote, In our day, a great many people get excited about the claim of certain ones who have the gift of healing. Personally, 
I don't think anyone has that gift in our day. For many years, I've offered $100 to anyone who can come forward and be able to prove that he has been healed by a so-called faith healer. You would think that literally hundreds of people who have reported these faith healings during this time in which we live uh, at sensational healing ministries and meetings, that they would come forward and present a case of being genuine. I'll be honest with you. I didn't expect anyone to come along uh, with such a cure. No one has come, in fact. I asked the leader of a certain denomination who has offered $1,000 to anyone who can prove that he has been cured by a faith healer, and his experience has been the same as mine. He told me about several lawsuits, however, that have been filed against him because those who, those who have come forward and have been found to be liars have tr still tried to collect the money. No one, however, has been able to go into court and prove that he has been healed by a faith healer. In contrast to this, there were thousands of people who were healed by our Lord Jesus Christ when he lived on earth. And I would think that there would be at least one today if it was still happening. Wouldn't you think so? End of quote. Let me ask you this question. What is it that you want from Jesus today? He might not heal your body of cancer, disease, illness, but he will heal your soul. He will make you spiritually fit to be in his presence. You have the greatest hope that anyone can have. You have the hope of being translated from this place into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at the moment that you pass or when the rapture comes. Isn't that awesome? It didn't sound like you were really thrilled with it. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, all right, that's better. In verse 36, we read, Seeing the people, the Jewish people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were dis distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is a compassionate and loving God who hurts for those who are hurting. There's no doubt about that. We read here that the religious Elites were abusing the people of Israel, and they were distressed and dispirited because of it. They were wearied. They were harassed. This whole religious rigmarole operated by the religious hucksters at the temple was wearing them out. Like a bunch of exhausted sheep, they ran from here to there because there was no shepherd to guide them. But the wolves were after the sheep, and they were unable to defend themselves they were helpless before the onslaught of those who pretended to be shepherds but were not. The only thing the false shepherds did was fleece the sheep. Their hair gone, they wandered about falling into spiritual crevices because there was no spiritual guide to lead them. In fact, these false shepherds were attempting to keep the sheep from the great shepherd. Bottom line here is that Jesus presents an indictment of the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, because they had turned their back on doing their job as ministers of God in order to enrich themselves, and nothing is different today. Now, Matthew closes this section with two illustrations of the Jewish people. Verse 37 paints a very bleak picture when he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Stop there for a second. Look closely at the words. Jesus is speaking of Israel and not the world. Jesus is saying that Israel is ready for a great spiritual harvest, but there's a huge problem. The harvest is ready to be picked, but there are no pickers. Jesus sees the Jewish people as a rich spiritual harvest of souls, ready to be brought into the kingdom of God, which he is offering. But there's only a few laborers ready to pick the harvest. That is Jesus and his disciples. The false religious leaders were virtually no help at all. In fact, they were enemies to the gospel of the kingdom. Some out there who have looked at this Passage, see these workers as angels sent by God to execute final judgment on the nations. But that's just silly. It's not so. It's not true. These are men who are called by God to rescue the lost Jews from the final judgment, the future judgment. This harvest is so thick, it's ready to to go and to fill the bins of, of God's kingdom. But there's no one to go out and share in the harvest. It's not much different today in the kingdom of God called the church, is it? The dispensation of the church. The harvest is still thick amongst the Jews. That's why Paul said we are to take the gospel of grace to the Jew first. Remember? To the Jew first. He commands his disciples to earnestly pray about this problem. I'm asking you to earnestly pray about this problem. The harvest is thick. The gospel of grace is what we share today. But are you harvesting those who need to hear it with the sickle of God's grace? In verse 38 we read, Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. You know something, when you pray for something, you usually end up being the answer to that prayer. Jesus is asking his disciples to pray about themselves as being the laborers who will go in and harvest the crop. And usually when you pray about something, you end up being the one who answers that prayer. He wants to send them into the harvest land of Israel, and we'll see that next week as he sends them out into every city village and hamlet in Israel to share the gospel of the kingdom. Go out there and pick for the kingdom the people who are ripe and will respond to it. Now next week, we start chapter 10, where Jesus spells out his mission for his disciples. So the question is clear for them. To the, the answer is clear to them for the question, what is it that you want? From Jesus. It's the same answer that we have for our question. We want the mercy of God and then to be equipped to be harvesters for Him. So, how does this speak to our lives today? Let me suggest a few things. I'm almost done here and then we'll have our time of uh, celebrating the Lord's table. First of all, whenever you are ministering for the Lord, you should expect interruptions. Whenever you are in the midst of sharing answers about God and his purposes in this world, about Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers freely, expect interruptions. The Lord was interrupted at every turn, and yet he didn't send people away. He didn't quiet people. He continued to minister. He was flexible, and he fit into their schedule and not the other way around. Secondly, any kind of 
faith in Jesus pleases God, whether it's little or big, whether it's from a Gentile, from a Jew. Don't buy into the teaching that there is a difference between kinds of faith. That's just nonsense. The only kind of faith that there is is saving faith. It is faith in Christ, the object of our faith, that saves you and continues to save you until the rapture. Thirdly, what you should be asking for from Jesus is not fix my life or fix my situation or fix this or fix that. You should be asking only for one thing, his mercy. Because, my dear ones, you need it on a daily basis. If you're anything like Sue, you need it on a day. I mean me. You need it on a daily basis. My wife is wonderful. I'm just, you know, when I do that, I'm just kidding. We don't deserve his mercy. We don't deserve his mercy, but he says he will give it to you freely as a gift. I need his mercy daily. I need his grace moment by moment in my life. Lastly, finally, How can you apply this text? Get busy harvesting from the crop that is around you. You can do it. You can do it in the place that God has put you. I can't be there. Only you can be there. Share the message of the gospel of grace. Preach it and teach it, and you will have a great harvest. You will be blessed also when you do so with the abundant life that Christ offers. Let us pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the truths of this scripture. Help us, Lord, to love the Jewish people. Those who reject our Savior, help us to love them with a whole heart. Take the gospel to the Jew first. But help us, Lord, to be cognizant of our Jerusalem, our Judea, to be reaching out here. There's no one else to do it, Lord, but us. Us 7,000. Help us, Lord, to take the gospel to the community around us and see our church grow and be blessed because of it. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.